Some people don't understand why you've already busted out the sweaters. They may raise a brow at keeping scarecrows out year-round, but you just go ahead. Let them stare, because you eat, sleep, and drink pumpkin at Dunkin'. So sip your classic spiced and iced $3 medium pumpkin spice signature latte, or try the bold pumpkin cream cold brew, an ultra-smooth brew topped with pumpkin cream cold foam. Also $3 for a medium. All so you can fall harder. America runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. Setting fire to the stoner stereotype. Sparking up candid conversations with cannabis researchers, entrepreneurs, and advocates. Educator, author, and advocate Dr. Mitch Earlywine is here to tackle the burning issues. CannabisRadio.com presents a no-holds-barred platform that seeks to redefine and revolutionize the entire scope of the cannabis culture while opening the door for more to join the cannabis crusade. Please welcome the host of Burning Issues, Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Welcome back to Burning Issues, where we burn away the cannabis myths with science. As many of you know, I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine, professor of psychology at the University of Albany and author of the Oxford University Press book, Understanding Marijuana. I also pen the High Times column, Ask Dr. Mitch. Today, we'll chat with NYU's Dr. Joseph Palomar, author of some of my favorite work related to the cannabis plant. We'll also have a new segment on self-compassion in the art of activism. Dr. Palomar received his PhD in public health from New York University. He's now on the faculty in the Department of Population Health at New York University Medical Center. He's affiliated with the Institute of Human Development and Social Change, and it warms my heart to say he's also a stats instructor. I promise we won't go off on tangents about the binomial distribution, even for those of us who are a bit bi-curious. A warm burning issues welcome, Dr. Palomar. Hi, Mitch. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. You've done a lot of work with the large national data sets. I just want to sort of give folks a feel for how these are gathered and what they're like. I know monitoring the future is a big one. How are they gathered? What do they measure? What do you think? Yeah, monitoring the future is the big one I've been focusing on for the last two or three years. It's an uh, annual cross-sectional study. It's a representative sample of high school students throughout the U.S. I focus primarily on the high school seniors because I feel that they're at most risk because they're entering adulthood. They're usually about 17, 18 years old, so I'm not as interested in the younger students. But anyway, yeah, they, they collect this data every year and they analyze trends over time to see what drug is increasing or decreasing and prevalence and things like that. But there are public data available that somewhat anyone could really learn to analyze. So I focused a lot on that over the last couple of years. That's great. And so it seems like these are a bunch of kids sort of sitting around in a classroom filling these out. Do you have any concerns about their validity or what do we take, what steps are taken to try to make them as accurate as possible? I'm not sure whether or not the teachers are present in the classrooms. I, I hope they're not, at least not usually. There are people that lie in in both directions. There are people who probably exaggerate use. They sit there and they check off and every drug and laugh about it with their friends, saying, oh, yeah, we used crack, heroin, this and that. And then there are people who deny use. There are people who have used drugs and are too scared to check off yes to them. There might be some sort of balance along the way, but I think monitoring the future deletes some suspicious responses that don't really go together. I hope it's cleaned up okay, but I'm not really sure. It makes some sense that they could take those steps. 
And then I know you've got a paper out based on this data set suggesting that if cannabis were legal, about 10% of the folks who haven't tried it might try it. Is that a fair summary? Yeah. The main finding from that analysis was that about one out of 10 non-marijuana users said that they would try it in the case of legalization. The interesting thing is uh, we actually originally presented this is that 90% of non-marijuana users said that they would not use, but the editors didn't like that very much. We had to say that 10% said they would try it. There are some problems with the question, though. It's very vague. For example, they didn't specify an age limit. They didn't say if you were 21 or anything like that. So it, it was kind of a vague question, but we, we just analyzed that one variable that was available. I'm curious about that framing then, too, the idea that, hey, 90% wouldn't seems in some ways kind of encouraging to the legalization movement, but it sounds like your reviewers on the paper were apprehensive about that approach. Yeah, I don't remember if it was the journal it was published in or the previous journal that reviewed it, but I've had a couple of reviewers point out they didn't like the wording, that it sounded too liberal. I think it was in the previous journal that reviewed it. And then when I resubmitted somewhere else, I said only 10% said they would use, and I had to remove only. So I had to keep it as objective as possible. And I, I get it. It's, it's scientific literature, and I, I don't want it political. I mean, this is what we have to deal with. I mean, you have a million publications. You, you, know, you deal with this stuff every day. Uh, indeed, I do. It's curious how that only 10% had to become 10% and things like that. I'm uh, always intrigued when my colleagues make reviewing comments like that. So that's a hoot. Yeah. But it's interesting because I've gotten a lot of criticism from, I'll just say, our side uh, about this paper because I wanted it to be a simple, objective paper. There's nothing political about it. I don't mention how, if and how marijuana is bad anywhere in the paper. It's just its rates of use and how legalization might relate to rates of use throughout the world. It's not an anti-marijuana paper. It's not a pro-legalization paper. It's just it's the facts. It's what we found with the data. Some people, you know, weren't happy with this. For example, an author at High Times came for me in an article saying, like, basically, I didn't know what I was talking about, but he didn't really read the paper to my knowledge. Um, so, but, but, and then there are trolls, you know, the whole troll phenomenon on the internet. They think, they assume you're an anti-legalization person if you put out objective information that goes against your cause. It's objective data. That's, that's all it is. It's not a pro or anti-legalization paper. Let me apologize for my High Times colleagues and assure yeah. you that everybody in the movement is grateful for you. I've tried to look at these huge data sets and they're monsters. So the fact that you can even get this inside a computer program and turn it into statistics, I bow to you, man. This, oh, is, thank you. <laughs> this is an incredible task with some huge samples and some amazingly weird quirks about it. So no, we're, we're incredibly grateful. Oh, well, thank you. But sure. I mean, it was interesting. The whole media response has been interesting. I mean, an anti-drug coalition assumed I was anti-legalization and asked me to write a piece for their website. And I wrote up this piece and I submitted it to them and they rejected it. They thought it was too liberal. And I mentioned harm reduction and they weren't happy about that. They said, we only take a, a firm abstinence only stance. We, we can't accept your piece. Even though this site and, and sites like Dare constantly republish all of my press releases, they just remove anything that sounds too liberal from the end, like, for example, recommendations for uh, harm reduction. So it's, it's, it's so interesting what's going on right now politically.
Oh, it's it's a hoot. So I, it's curious because the harm reduction approach has had a rough time in the United States for literally decades. And the fact that something as simple as a stat of 10% gets sucked into this uh, intrigues me to no end. Do you have other mm. thoughts about harm reduction with cannabis where things are more controversial than not? Not specifically to cannabis. I mean, it's not the most dangerous drug to begin with. I mean, I'm more concerned with harm reduction towards, uh, with regard to ecstasy use, for example. Um, I, I'm more interested in the quote-unquote harder drugs. And do you have any insights for listeners who might uh, be in contemplation, shall we say, about trying ecstasy? Absolutely. I mean, if you insist on trying or, or using ecstasy, I mean, you have to be educated about it. You have to stay hydrated. You can't dance outside in 100-degree weather for 10 hours uh, on ecstasy. It's just it, – it's – very dangerous to do. It's dangerous to do without ecstasy. A lot of people just aren't educated, unfortunately. It's really sad. And it really kills me when I hear about kids dropping dead at festivals because they probably just weren't educated enough. And then a lot of ecstasy is also contaminated with uh, adulterants such as bath salts. And um, you you never really know what you're getting. So uh, if you insist on using, I'd say try to get a test kit and find out if it's real MDMA or if it's the fake stuff. It's funny because that's such a problem with the underground market more generally. And I, I have to confess, if we did have a legal market in ecstasy, God forbid I should even mention it, uh, we'd at least know the purity of the product. Absolutely. But, you know, a, a lot of people will think that that's promoting or condoning use, un unfortunately. I mean, rates of use are increasing and it's becoming more normalized. I mean, look at look at pop culture. I mean, Molly is everywhere. So, I mean, you might be strongly against drugs, but you might have a teenage kid who's using it and you don't know about it. And God forbid, like something happens to your kid. That is related to your anti-drug stance, because if people thought a little bit more in an open-minded fashion that harm reduction techniques might be more available. Well, as my cannabis radio brother Vivian McPeak would say, we have to pause for the cause because there are flaws in the laws. We're going to get a word from our sponsors and be right back. Please don't go away. More burning issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. Your connection to quality cannabis insurance services is spelled K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R. -E -E That's Karcher Insurance. We have worked with ventures like cannabis for over 60 years. We're proud to represent over 50 companies with tailor-made cannabis plans for owners just like you to insure your product, your plants, and your pursuits. K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R -E -E spells out their full-service insurance services, ranging from commercial to bonds, to personal, from life to health, and more. Contact the team at KarcherInsurance.com and let our experience work for you. That's K-A-E-R-C-H-E-R Insurance.com. Contact Karen and the team at Karcher Insurance at 1-844-421-3560. That's 844-421-3560. MJWellness.com, the largest medical marijuana community in the world. Connect with thousands of patients, doctors, industry leaders, and businesses through shared personal experiences along our worldwide network. 
Discover new therapies and benefits with content tailored to you. Come grow your network on mjwellness.com. You're not alone. Your wellness matters. Learn, live, and thrive. Check out mjwellness.com today. Doc Rob, the concierge for better living. Cannabis is just one of the many great plants that we have on this planet called Earth that we can use consciously and intelligently to improve our well-being. Take a real, raw, inside look at healthier living while sharing great ideas and improvements for a better quality of life. Learning to live and live well is a lifelong process. This is a journey. It could be you could be 80 years old or 8 years old. You can still learn something that's going to make tomorrow a little bit healthier, a little bit easier, a little bit happier, a little bit better. The Concierge for Better Living with Doc Rob. Only on CannabisRadio.com. Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues. Only on CannabisRadio.com. And we're back. We're talking with Dr. Joseph Palomar from New York University. I wanted to bring up some of your work that looks at the synthetic cannabinoids like K2, Dr. Palomar. We were struck would lose its pop. What have you noticed? Well, it was a lot more popular a couple of years ago. About one out of 10 high school seniors reported use about three years ago, but use has decreased a lot since then, thankfully. The problem is uh, a lot of people are resorting to this synthetic, I shouldn't even call it synthetic weed, but I'm just saying that because it's easier for people to understand. A lot of people resorting to synthetic weed because they're worried they're going to get arrested holding the real stuff, or they're worried they're going to fail a drug test. And if you happen to be black or Hispanic and live in an area like New York City or D.C., then the chances of you getting stopped and frisked and possibly arrested and sentenced because of marijuana possession are much more likely. So uh, it's, it's really sad to see that people are resorting to this garbage of a drug. So essentially we're turning to a harder drug, a drug with markedly more negative consequences, simply to sidestep prohibition and drug tests. Pretty much, and that's the way it is. And I'm not saying that synthetic cannabinoids will totally disappear if marijuana happened to be legalized. I mean, people are still using it to pass drug tests. So I don't really know what's going on in Colorado right now, for example. I don't know if people are failing drug tests or what, but I mean, it still is a risk. But we need to get this stuff off the streets. I mean, it's, it's a horrible drug that's going around. It's funny because I had thought that the word, maybe that was part of why its popularity was decreasing. Do you have any insights into why it may be dropping? Well, I'm hoping availability is decreasing. I mean, it's hard to get rid of because every time they make a particular compound or brand illegal, a new one pops up to take its place a couple of days later. So, I mean, I'm hoping availability decreases, but at the same time, I'm worried what will replace that if that disappears. There's always another more harmful drug around the corner waiting to pop up. But, I mean, use is continuing, especially here in New York City. I mean, they just signed a ban last week. I don't think they've uh, enacted it yet. I think it takes a couple of months to start working. But we just we really need to get this stuff off the streets. It's, it's not good at all. I agree wholeheartedly. You've also done a paper recently that looks about reasons for using marijuana and sort of how different reasons for using marijuana may actually predict use of other drugs, including hard drugs. Can you give us a feel for those data? Well, 
First things first, just the descriptive statistics. We focus just on people who said they've used marijuana within the last 12 months. So everyone was a recent marijuana user in this sample. His take-home message actually was nothing that had to do with reasons. Recent marijuana users reported never using other illicit drugs. We have to keep that in mind. A lot of people are saying that if you use other drugs, most of these people hadn't used other drugs. So, I mean, that was my main take-home message. But about two-thirds of these people reported using to experiment, like just to try it out and see what it's like. And these people were actually at low risk for reporting use of other drugs. But then again, you have people who are quote-unquote hooked, or they feel they're hooked, which is a very small percentage of this population. It was about 4%. They're at higher risk for use of other drugs. And we did find that other reasons, like, for example, using for insight, increased the odds for also using other uh, hallucinogens. It's curious. So you have a subset of folks who are using cannabis as kind of an insight enhancer, and then they're likely to move to hallucinogens, perhaps for comparable reasons? Yeah, it might be like a common cause. We're not sure. I mean, everything is cross-sectional, so we don't know the order of initiation or anything like that. We definitely need longitudinal data to figure that out. But I thought we had some cool results, so I thought it was worth you know, publishing. No, it's, it's a nice addition to the literature. I'm, I'm grateful. The monitoring of the future doesn't break the data down by state, does it? No, they have state-level data, but they don't use the right randomization methods to analyze it by state. So that I, I think that's the reason state-level data aren't available. I'm interested in doing state-level marijuana analyses, just it, it, it's not available. It's kind of a shame that we can't quite get that the way we need it to go. You would have to use NSDUH data to do that, but plenty of people are doing that right now. Okay, good point. And then you've also done some recent work on hash. Could you give us a feel for how those data turned out? I don't even remember. That was a paper I asked if you wanted to help write, and then you weren't interested. But we got it out. It's just, I I mean, I guess you just found it completely boring, and I don't don't remember the results. I hope you chopped this part out of this interview. (laughs) I was just going to ask why focus on hash. Uh, you had somebody who was willing to do it, and I'm glad. <laughs> I mean, no one has focused on hash, so I figure let me get my let me get it out there. Because if if you look through abstracts, I don't think hashish is mentioned like more than once or twice in all of PubMed. So I'm like, let me get this out there, just because there's nothing else on it. But even you weren't interested in it. <laughs> <laughs> it's curious because in Canada and in European countries, I feel like hash is much more prevalent it might it might have a a bigger intrigue but here in the u.s i got a feeling like it's just not that common so that's why (laughs) well so i feel like we're trying to sidestep these issues of underreporting, and i just wondered if you had any feel for that at all in part because we're sort of comparing data we're gathering now post legalization certain areas to data from back in prohibition days and so in those states, it looks like there are these increases when, in fact, it may be more an increase in reporting than an actual increase in use. You know what I mean? Yeah, it might be an increase of uh, willingness to report. You make an excellent point because if marijuana is being less stigmatized right now, then uh, your average person might be more likely to just talk about it in the open. Um, and some things I, I, I notice is that uh, – I mean – Everybody I talk to, I talk about drugs. I go on a lot of dates. I talk about drugs with all of them. It's what I do. I talk about drugs all the time. 
And oftentimes I'll be on a date and I'll be like, all right, so what drugs have you used after we talk about my career? Fine. And they'll say, oh, I never used anything, not even our long. And but then you you let them keep talking, and then a minute later she'll say something like, "Yeah, you know, I only use marijuana once or twice." I'm like, "You just told me you never used anything, not even weed." Oh, but that doesn't count. Like, how does it not count? You used it. Yeah, but I didn't like it, so I didn't use it again. You used it. You were supposed to check off yes if you took a survey, but you would have lied and said no. So I guess this counts as qualitative or ethnographical research. I don't know. But I, I, I noticed firsthand that a lot of people just straight out lie about drugs because it's stigmatized. And I just want to emphasize to listeners that Dr. Palomar is single. Yes. <laughs> this is the funniest interview. <laughs> so last year, you, you published this really great paper comparing cannabis to alcohol and negative consequences. And I just wanted to walk through some of those findings you had with the high school students uh, about negative consequences of cannabis versus alcohol. Yeah, this was, I don't uh, this to me was a really fun paper. I loved writing this paper with my colleagues and we got a lot of press about this throughout the US and in Canada. So what we did was we compared uh 15 or 16 potential adverse uh, outcomes associated with alcohol and associated with marijuana. Basically the students were given a checklist, check off yes or no to all of these for alcohol and then for marijuana. So uh we compared, and I think that, I mean, the results, they're not unexpected. It, it doesn't mean marijuana is not associated with any adverse effects. I mean, every drug, whether it's marijuana or Tylenol, any drug has its own potential for adverse effects. But anyway, what we found was they were pretty much two different animals with regard to adverse outcomes. So the adverse outcomes associated with marijuana were very different. We found that alcohol was more likely to lead to regretful behavior, especially among females. Think about uh, young girls getting trashed and doing dumb things, and then they regret it. And alcohol was also related to compromised relationships with friends or significant others, such as boyfriends or girlfriends. So when you think about it, a lot of people on alcohol, and this includes adults, do a lot of stupid things on alcohol that they regret. So I don't think any of us are really a stranger to any of that. Most importantly, with alcohol, they were more likely to report uh, unsafe driving after drinking. And that's really scary because that affects other people and not just themselves. Uh, marijuana was more likely to lead to compromised relationships with authority figures such as parents and teachers. So uh, that's no way as dangerous as drunk driving. So it, it seems like the illegality of marijuana was one of the bigger issues. So, I mean, more research is needed, but I think we got some cool findings. Oh, I agree. And hey, I can't thank you enough for all this hard work and for being here on Burning Issues. We do have to wrap it up. We've had a really wonderful chat with Dr. Joseph Palomar from the Department of Population Health at New York University Medical Center. Thanks so much for being with us. And everybody, please stay tuned for our next section on self-compassion and the art of activism. More Burning Issues coming up after we blaze through these words from our sponsors. 
Dr. Dabber, hurry! Its temperature is shooting past 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up! I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct! Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber, doctor's order. Less heat, <laughs> more flavor. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. Growing green to generate more green. Hello to all you happy herbalizers, smiling, trippy hippies, and everyone who believes in freedom and tolerance. This is The Grow Show, and I'm Kyle Cushman. From food to fuel, from remedy to resource. Welcome my guest, Ed Rosenthal, the guru of ganja. Let me ask you, right now I hear your lighter clicking. Are you smoking indoor, or are you smoking sun-grown? What am I smoking? I'm smoking concentrate. <laughs> Way to get out of the answer there. So you're truly like the, the king, right? You just have you just clap your hands and somebody brings you a bowl and you're all set, right? Mm, I wish that were the case. <laughs> the Grow Show with Kyle Cushman, only on CannabisRadio.com. Time to fan the fire on some more burning issues, only on CannabisRadio.com. And welcome back to Burning Issues, your chapter of self-compassion in the art of activism. Here's the part of our show that encourages all our listeners to take good care of themselves and each other. It's how we support the Cannabis Crusade. I got a nice email asking about some of the work we've discussed about our own thoughts. Many of the Burning Issues listeners have learned a good deal and a great lesson from the plant itself, the idea that our thoughts are not reality. We've all had moments when our thoughts were clearly wrong and got us to feel strangely. Walking in the woods, I once stepped on a stick. For less than a second, I thought it was a snake and almost leaped from my skin. As soon as I realized it was a stick, I wasn't afraid. In fact, it was kind of funny. The stick didn't scare me. The snake didn't scare me. It wasn't even there. It was the thought of the snake that scared me plenty. Fortunately, the thought was not reality. But it's easy to over-identify with our thoughts. It's easy to think that we think what's real, even when it's not real. And of course, that has an impact on how we feel. Truth is, plenty of thoughts just bounce around my head like drunken monkeys. The idea helps me make a certain distinction. I can have thoughts pop up left and right, but I don't have to believe them. And the way to weaken my belief usually involves asking questions. This is all kind of hard in the abstract, so let me grab one of the thoughts that seems to show up for me a lot. I should be happy all the time. Right off the bat, I know this one's going to be a bit irrational because it has a should in it, and it's also got an all. I should be happy all the time. All, always, never, and extremes like that can drive anyone nuts. Recognizing tough thoughts can be a good first step towards letting them loose. So let's take a close look at this thought and ask some questions. 
I should be happy all the time? My questions usually involve seeing how much I really believe the thought. Then I ask for evidence. I pretend like I heard it from someone else. And then I look for a better way to think about whatever it is. So I should be happy all the time. On a scale from zero, not at all, to 10, absolutely, how much do I really believe this thought? I got to admit, this one gets me sometimes. I think that deep down, I'm probably an eight. A part of me really does think that I'm supposed to be happy all the time. So next I ask, is there any evidence that this thought is really true all the time? In truth, I have to say no. I'd love it if I were happier. I know some people who are happier more often than I am, but I can't say there's evidence that I should be happy all the time. So I got to let that sink in a minute and then ask the next question. If somebody else told me this, would I believe it? If somebody else told me I have to be happy all the time, I'd probably start laughing. It sounds pretty impossible when you hear it. I might say, good luck, buddy, or better yet, let yourself off the hook. Hey, the Bible says even Jesus wept. My last question is, is there a better way to think about this? I think so. Rather than thinking I should be happy all the time, I can see it a little differently. Yes, I would love to be happy more often. It's my preference to be happy a lot, but I don't have to be happy all the time. More importantly, if I'm not happy, there's no need to make myself feel even worse simply because I'm not happy. So let's assess again now. On a scale from zero, not at all, to 10, absolutely, how much do I really believe this thought? I should be happy all the time? Well, now that I've kind of hashed through it, I really don't believe it very much at all. I guess I'd give it a two. I'm sure this thought will pop up again, but I won't have to believe it. And now, I won't make myself feel bad about feeling bad in the first place. So grab one of your thoughts and see how much you really believe it. Ask for evidence. Think what you'd say to someone else who said it and look for a better way. The thought might not disappear, but it's less likely to drive you nuts. Hey, my hearty thanks to you all. Thanks for listening to CanvasRadio.com. You can find us at CanvasRadio.com. You can find us on our Hyde Radio. You can find us on iTunes. My endless thanks to producer extraordinaire Brasco and our guest, the commendable Dr. Joseph Palomar of New York University. I'm Dr. Mitch Earlywine. Follow your heart and let the data be your guide. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited. Some people don't understand why you've already busted out the sweaters. They may raise a brow at keeping scarecrows out year-round, but you just go ahead. Let them stare, because you eat, sleep, and drink pumpkin at Dunkin'. So sip your classic spiced and iced $3 medium pumpkin spice signature latte, or try the Bold Pumpkin Cream Cold Brew, an ultra-smooth brew topped with pumpkin cream cold foam. Also $3 for a medium. All so you can fall harder. America runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply.